This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Immigration was a big theme in President Trump's speech to Congress last night. He mentioned it eight times, including in the context of immigration reform. If we are guided by the well-being of American citizens, then I believe Republicans and Democrats can work together to achieve an outcome that has eluded our country for decades. He again talked about building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, saying construction would start soon, and there were references to, quote, finally enforcing immigration laws. One way the administration hopes to do that is by relying on local law enforcement, encouraging them to arrest and detain immigrants illegally in the country. In Colorado, one sheriff's office has a lot of experience with this. That's El Paso County, which includes Colorado Springs. But there are challenges, as I heard from under-sheriff Joe Breister. Welcome to the program. Thank you. In a memo last month, Trump's Department of Homeland Security says it wants to expand a program that trains local law enforcement as immigration agents. Uh, This program is called 287G. It has actually existed nationally since the Clinton administration. And the El Paso County Sheriff's Office was the last agency in Colorado to participate. You started in 07, stopped in 2015. And your sheriff's office said recently it wasn't interested in resuming What were the big factors behind the decision to stop? The program itself, in essence, deputized, if you will, local law enforcement as federal marshals. And we were doing their work so that they wouldn't have to physically come to our facility to process people. And it just became too time-consuming with the fact that space availability in our jail was less and less. And we just couldn't house the numbers. We would have upwards of 150 at times in our facility, and we just didn't have the space to continue housing those. Were you ever reimbursed by the federal government for those resources? They do reimburse us. What we have is a set daily fee for what it costs to house somebody in our facility. But not necessarily for the hours logged by the deputies? No, there was no reimbursement for deputy time. And so in a memo, explaining why you ended the program in El Paso County. You said it had simply become a drain on manpower and that some deputies were spending vast portions of their shifts on on a single case sometimes. Yes, it can take roughly a deputy to do all the paperwork, all the processing, all the computer entries, anywhere from three to four hours. And with the daily number of people we have coming in and out of our jail just for serving El Paso County, again, the time constraints were just way too much. We just did not have the manpower to accommodate it. Did it then make what I suppose you would say are regular duties of a sheriff's deputy harder? Or did something else fall by the wayside? Well, I don't think anything fell by the wayside, but there were unavoidable delays. And we want to show the or I guess dedicate ourselves to the citizens of El Paso County as opposed to assisting the federal immigration process. I want to say that the state patrol participated in this program for a while as well, but it stopped in 2014. And I should be clear that it's voluntary. So the federal government doesn't require sheriff's offices, the state patrol or police departments to make officers to be trained as immigration agents. And a 287G has helped deport some immigrants who committed crimes. It could particularly help police or sheriff's departments that are far away from where ICE has offices. 
Those are two things that proponents often point to. What were the advantages in being a part of this program for El Paso County? I mean, really, there weren't any tangible benefits. I I guess you could say a benefit was we were assisting the Department of Homeland Security, their Immigration and Customs Enforcement, in doing their job, um, identifying people who might have been in the country illegally. But it, it needs to be said, we did not go out and physically round up any of these people. What happened is these people would come into our jail for charges, crimes that they'd committed locally, and we would have access to the ICE computers to check them to uh, verify whether they were in the country legally or illegally. So even though El Paso County didn't apprehend people under this immigration cooperation program, uh, it is absolutely the intention of the Trump administration, and I, I think of this law, that local law enforcement be able to do that. Yes, the Trump administration's goal, from my understanding, based upon the executive order, is that they would want a contingency of officers to go out into the streets of El Paso County, Denver, wherever you're at, and physically look for people suspected of being illegal immigrants and bring them back into the jail to be processed. Why didn't El Paso County choose to do that? We just did not feel at that point in time that it was viable. We didn't have the manpower to do it. Plus, we felt like it would lead to racial profiling. Yeah, you, you wrote in 2015 in that sort of final memo, there aren't any good reasons to remain involved in 287G. And yet I can imagine someone listening, thinking, well, sure, it's potentially expensive. It requires time. But enforcing the law requires those things. Right. Why not participate? Well, I, it's one of those. It's it's like anything else. You have to prioritize when it comes to manpower. The biggest thing that I think needs to be understood is being in the country illegally is a civil violation, an administrative action. It is not a criminal violation. Um, in other words, there is not a state statute or a federal code for criminal charges for somebody being in the country illegally. It's a civil matter, which the ramification for is review by a judge and then whether or not that person will be deported from the country. So technically, we do not have the authority to enforce federal civil violations. Right. It was not a violation of any county or state law. It was enforcing federal immigration law. Correct. The head of the Colorado Sheriff's Association said recently uh, to the Colorado Independent that the Trump administration may focus on border states to try to expand its local training of law enforcement there. Um, But even if the focus isn't on Colorado, you've said your program was hailed as a model nationwide with practices that the other 70-some-odd law enforcement agencies that participated could learn from. Uh, So I suppose what you're saying locally in El Paso County has some salience for the rest of the country. It does. I mean, if you fully invest yourself into this and you have the resources to do it, it is a tremendous asset for the federal government. But again, it boils down to who are we paid to serve and protect? It's our community. That's part of it. But we have to deal with the citizens of El Paso County before we worry about the federal government and the concerns and problems that they're trying to address through the immigration reform. I do understand that one of your frustrations was that some immigrants you identified ended up not getting deported, even if they were in the country illegally, because uh, President Obama's administration focused its resources on deporting more serious criminals. 
uh, or criminals at all. Again, that's a civil offense to be in the country illegally. Would you be more willing to train officers as immigration agents if you had more of a guarantee, as you might under Trump, that people you arrest and detain would actually be deported? I mean, that's kind of a blurring of the lines. We have no idea of how many were deported, how many weren't. That's information we never got back from ICE. Really? We just so you, you participated in this program with no sense of what its impact was. Correct. Once they removed them from our facility, we had no idea what the determination was by the federal government or by the judges that they appeared before in the Denver area. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And you may know that the Trump administration hopes to rely increasingly on local law enforcement to help enforce immigration laws. This is allowed under a Clinton-era act a section known as 287G. And for a while, the El Paso County Sheriff's Office participated from about 2007 through 2015, then decided it was too much of a drain on local resources to continue. We're getting some perspective on their experience, again, as the Trump administration looks to increase use of the program. I do want to say that the El Paso County Sheriff's Office still works with another federal program, where you detain immigrants in the jail, suspected of being in the country illegally, but without all of that paperwork and training that you talked about earlier. And why have you stuck with that program? What's in it for for El Paso County? Well, we've stuck with it because we have a contract valid until August of 2018, but we just don't have the, the space availability. So right now, I believe we don't have any in our jail that are being held on that. Do you think that you'll renew that contract come 2018? I think a lot of that depends on not only what's happened nationally with the Immigration Reform Act, but also what's happening locally in Denver. There's several uh, legislative initiatives being introduced that could drastically change how local law enforcement responds. Hmm. Sometimes this means you have to take in folks from other states, right? It's not all just local Oh, correct. Uh Correct. It would not be uncommon for us to receive busloads of people from El Paso, Texas, from Del Rio, Texas. They would bring them up here and house them in ours to get them before the court in the Denver area. In 2014, Arapahoe County settled with a woman who was held for three days after she was scheduled to be released. And their decision to hold her on behalf of immigration authorities cost the county $30,000. In 2011, Jefferson County settled a similar case for $40,000. The immigrant in that case also got a similar settlement with ICE. Are there issues here with liability, legal liability? Yes, and, and that obviously is a concern for the elected officials of any sheriff's office that, I mean, a lot of these, sometimes you hold them on ICE only to be informed two, three days later to release them because they were determined to be a naturalized U.S. citizen or have a U.S. citizenship. And and when that happens, you are basically, not basically, you are violating their constitutional rights. Rulings have come out, there's court precedents that local law enforcement is under no obligation to honor or enforce the detainers that ICE places on individuals. And I think that's where the big confusion and rub starts to come. Mm. I don't hear you saying, though, Uh, that El Paso County will be a sanctuary county. No, we won't. I mean, I think one of the problems, if you will, with this is we don't want 
a certain segment of the population to feel like they're being unduly targeted to where they're going to be victimized because they aren't going to want to report or call law enforcement for fear that our first objective is going to be, are you here in the country illegally because we're going to deport you? Yeah, because critics of this program say that there could be a chilling effect. The last thing we would want for somebody, let's say, to be a victim of a sex crime, not report that for fear they may be deported. Um, We're not serving the community or doing the community any favors if that thought process becomes prevalent throughout the community. Did that happen when you were participating in this 287G program? Do you think trust was eroded? Um, I don't think it was eroded so much for us because ours was just a jail task force. The only people we interacted with or inquired or queried for their status within the country was once they had come to the jail. And obviously, if they came to the jail, they came there because they were under arrest for some type of a local charge. Because you weren't involved in pure immigration apprehensions, once again. Exactly. Uh, Under Sheriff Reiser from El Paso County, is there anything the federal government could do to this 287G program, this deputizing of local law enforcement for immigration enforcement? Is there anything they could do to change it that you think would make it more workable? Well, I think one could be the timeliness and the volume of paperwork associated with it. But I think the bigger problem is there's not a consistent message coming from the judiciary as to what can and cannot be done on these immigration holds. The state courts have to recognize and adapt the federal guidelines, and the federal courts have got to clearly establish what can and cannot be done on immigration holds, seeing they are not a criminal matter, but a civil matter. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Joe Breister is undersheriff in El Paso County, which includes Colorado Springs. We talked about the challenges when local law enforcement act as immigration agents, something the Trump administration hopes there will be more of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Standing Rock Sioux's protest of the Dakota Access Pipeline grabbed the nation's attention, but American Indian tribes have a long history of fighting for sovereignty and control of their resources. The new documentary Beyond Standing Rock starts with the struggle in North Dakota, then turns to other stories of tribes trying to harness their destinies, including the Southern Ute of Colorado. Inside Energy correspondent Lee Patterson is one of the film's producers. Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Why don't we start with a clip from the film. This is the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, uh, David Archambault II, talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. We're a sovereign nation, and we're putting our foot down. You can't do this to us anymore. In the past, federal government steamrolled through us. Now today, we're saying, don't steamroll through us anymore. We're a sovereign nation. Recognize that. What, in fact, is the latest update from North Dakota? Sure. So the protest camps were sort of the focus of all the news coverage last year, right? Those protest camps are emptying out. And that's in part because law enforcement evacuated them last week from the largest camp anyway. And, you know, the spring floods are coming. So this is sort of inevitable. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Chairman Dave Archambault has said many times that this fight is no longer at the protest camps. It is no longer on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. This fight is in Washington. What that means is that this fight is going to court. And the most recent development in that is um, a federal judge on Tuesday heard arguments basically asking 
the company to halt construction on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, the judge said that he'll make a decision within the next week. And the company behind the pipeline, Energy Transfer Partners, says oil will actually be flowing through that Dakota Access Pipeline within the next couple of weeks. So really, no matter what happens in court within the next week, both sides are likely to appeal. All right. Well, as we said, the film starts at Standing Rock, then moves west to the Four Corners region. Um, As you made this film and talked with different people, what did you learn about the meaning of sovereignty? And that is so key. That is so key to the entire documentary. So for our listeners, I will just just define sovereignty just in case. So, So sovereignty refers to tribes' rights to govern themselves. Uh, define their membership, manage their own businesses, manage their land. And this concept has been um, has been put in place by various Supreme Court decisions, executive orders over the years. And um, and, and, and so tribes can assert their sovereignty in different ways. And that's exactly what we found out in this documentary. The Standing Rock Sioux are asserting their sovereignty um, by saying basically, hey, we are sovereign nations. We are our own nations, separate from the federal government. So you have to listen to us. And we don't want this pipeline. And so um, I, I, think, I, I think most of the controversy actually has focused on whether these tribes were actually listened to. And that gets at a really important concept called consultation. And consultation means that these tribes have a seat at the table because they are sovereigns. There's a sovereign-to-sovereign consultation relationship with the federal government. The Standing Rock Sioux say consultation was fundamentally flawed. They were never listened to. They were totally ignored. They said they didn't want the pipeline. The pipeline went through anyway. The Army Corps of Engineers counters by saying, hey, you guys, we called. We emailed. Sometimes you never called us back. You know, what are we supposed to do? And I think that kind of gets at a very fundamental disconnect between what me- what con- what fundamental, meaningful consultation actually looks like and also the degree to which the federal government has to incorporate the comments from tribes. And that's really a gray area. And in this quest to understand sovereignty, you focus as well on the Southern Utes in southwestern Colorado. Yes, we did. Why? It's a very different story, isn't it? Well, and that's exactly why we chose to focus (laughs) on it. (laughs) So the Southern Utes, um, they are in stark contrast in some ways to what we've just been talking about at Standing Rock. So the Southern Ute have asserted their sovereignty to develop, develop energy on their reservation. Right now, there are 600 wells within reservation boundaries alone. And when I was down there visiting, they, they took me up to slightly a higher elevation where you could kind of look down on the San Juan Basin. And you see scars crisscrossing that area. And those scars are buried pipelines. They're all over the place. And in, in some instances, tribes have allowed those pipelines to be built. In some instances, the Southern Utes actually own the pipeline That's and right. operated it themselves. Um, so, And I think the broader point is that there's a misconception that Native Americans are all environmentalists on top of everything. And, and really, there are over 500 fe- federally recognized tribes. You can't make blanket statements about so many different communities. There are, in any community, a variety of opinions and interests, and that is um, that is very true of the Southern Ute Indian tribe. And really what the Southern Utes did is they took the energy on their land and made sure they were in charge of it and that they were getting the proper royalties from it. So they actually put a moratorium in place 
on oil and gas leases from 1974 to 1984. And that was a really big deal. To kind of figure this out and and to, to create a system that the Southern Utes could benefit from. And that that has been described to me as the tribe taking an incredible risk, right? Because the tribe was making revenue from development on their reservation. They put a stop to that. And also they had to put resources in to figuring this all out that otherwise otherwise could have gone to other services. Um, so the moratorium was put in place. This was all spearheaded by a very important tribal chairman named Leonard C. Birch. He was sort of the guy who put this, this plan of action in place to take control. And under Leonard C. Birch... Um, the the tribe created their own Department of Energy. They brought in experts to sort of survey the land to see what sort of deposits were really there. They found that um, they took control over monitoring of royalties. They found that companies had been undervaluing the gas on their reservation and also hadn't been paying the property royalty amount. And so the tribe collected over $100 million in back payments and in underpayments. And this is largely because, you know, in the mid-20th century, it was the federal government who was who was overseeing most of these different um you know, parts of that system. And taking control is something that uh, former uh, Southern Ute tribal council member Mike Olguin reflects on in your documentary. A lot of it is control your destiny. Make sure you have the right people, good people, experienced people, knowledgeable people working for you. Hiring the right people, not necessarily relying on the federal government to do the math. So there are billions coming in uh, where is that money going? How does it benefit members of the Southern Ute? Yeah, so I'll answer that question in two parts. I think, you know, it's really important to talk about how life has changed on the reservation. Sure. In the mid-20th century, this was, um, you know, a rural agrarian community. Parts of the reservation had no electricity. They had no running water. The economy was next to nothing. Now, members are collectively worth billions, and, and the tribe is, is an absolute financial powerhouse. It's relatively small. It's only about 1,500 people, I should say. Right, 1,500 people um, in this reservation that is maybe 75 miles long and 12 to 20 miles wide. It's a, re- it's, it's a relatively small land area. But um, per capita income has doubled on the reservation between 1980 and 2010. And the way one um, former tribal member put it to me is that Anyone on the reservation who wants a job can get a job. And anyone who wants to go to college can go to college for free. And I have to say that, you know, all of all of this, especially their their um, business has headquarters, which I'm not exaggerating. It looks like a luxury car dealership. Oh. <laughs> and it's has, you know, it's tribal rec center is is um, state of the art as well as its museum. Um this is all very much in contrast to other reservations where, um, you know, according to the U.S. Census, poverty levels for Native Americans are at 30 percent. That is the higher, highest rate of any race in the entire United States. So mm. so this economic situation on the reservation is um, perhaps to call it unique is an understatement. I see. Yeah. Colorado has two federally recognized tribes. So the Southern Utes we've been talking about and the Ute Mountain Utes. And for more context, you spoke to Ernest House Jr. He's of Colorado's Ute Mountain Utes, also executive director of the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs. And he says Southern Utes 
started out with resources that not all tribes have. A very and, important point. And took huge risks, if you, as you've said. Unfortunately, not every tribe has those resources, has that opportunity to do that. But I think for those tribes like Southern Union Tribe, it's really shown them as a model in terms of this is what you can do to diversify a portfolio in a broad range of every element of business and every element of of what tribal affairs and tribal control might look like. And he says, in contrast, his tribe, the Ute Mountain Utes, face hurdles when it comes to communication, being consulted on issues that affect them. For some that have never been to my reservation before particularly, or even been to Indian country, a lot of times they don't realize that broadband hasn't reached out to Indian country. I mean, for some tribes, they, they have the services. For my tribe, we don't. The wind blows hard enough, our email is out for the rest of the day. Hmm. In stark contrast, as, as you said. So do you have to have resources to have sovereignty? Are those two things linked in some way? Oh, I mean, I think they are. It's sort of a difficult thing to quantify. But economic sovereignty, I think, is um, is an important part of sovereignty overall. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you had asked sort of, where does this money go? And I think my answer will sort of answer that question about what does, what does sovereignty and economic sovereignty look like in different places. With a lot of investments, I know. Some yes, yes, absolutely. So the way the Southern Ute do it, basically there's one fund that takes energy royalties and invests invest that in securities. And those securities pay for kind of life on the reservation, okay. schools, roads, government, that sort of thing. There's another fund that invests in a wide variety of everything, energy, real estate, private equity. And so these days, um, they own luxury condo and also kind of business facilities, you know, from California to Texas to Maryland. And so I, I think the idea... Um, is that these funds will grow over time at a, at a faster rate, hopefully, than the Southern Ute population and also inflation. Um, the one other really key point, I think, to understand is that this fund pays substantial dividends to tribal members themselves. We don't know how much they wouldn't disclose that to us. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Lee Patterson of Inside Energy, who has helped put together the new documentary Beyond Standing Rock, And it looks uh, in part at the Southern Ute tribe in Colorado, which is a a very different picture of sovereignty from what you have seen uh, debated and protested at Standing Rock. Um, You hinted at this a bit earlier, which is that uh, there's an assumption made that all American Indians are environmentalists. Um, And of course, it's possible to both embrace oil and gas and care about the land. But I I do wonder if if more pure environmentalists have concerns about the level of development or the monitoring or testing of oil and gas development uh, on the Southern Ute Reservation, for instance. Yes. And I think there's a, a, a data point that I need to mention before fully answering that question. So there are spills on the Southern Ute Reservation. Um, they are quite open about saying, yes, we have spills. The priority is to get in there and fix it. Inside Energy looked at the data and the rate of wastewater spills on the reservation is half of what it is for the state of Colorado as a whole. Oh, wow. Um, per capita, obviously, the rate. Yeah, 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 yeah. per capita, the rate. Um, but back to your initial question about environmental concerns. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I mean, there's a group called Wild Earth Guardians um, that we spoke to for the documentary. And um, they're, they're interested and worried in a, in a proposal coming out from the Southern Ute Indian tribe that wants to expand drilling greatly by 1,500, 1,600 wells. And their point was... 
you're sovereign. We understand that. You have your own government. But the impacts of oil and gas drilling go outside of reservation boundaries. Climate change, truck traffic, spills, all that stuff. So that, like, outsiders really should have a say. The other interesting point that uh, Jeremy Nichols from Wild Earth Guardians brought up was that, okay, they've done really well um, exploiting their fossil fuel or developing their fossil fuel resources. Is that the only way that a tribe can thrive? Mm. Um and the answer is, you know, I don't know that I think I think the tribal community does hold up the southern Utes as sort of an example of what works. And I think that gets to the larger issue of how do you how do you um, encourage economic development um, in these communities that have struggled for a very long time? Mm. Which is a question, actually, that affects more than just Indian country, for sure. Lee, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Lee Patterson, correspondent for Inside Energy and a producer of this new documentary, Beyond Standing Rock. It airs on Rocky Mountain PBS at 7 tomorrow night. You can watch a trailer now at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The words, a major leap, might make you think of what Neil Armstrong said walking on the moon. Well, NASA just used those words about the discovery of seven rocky planets orbiting a single star. Quote, a major leap forward in answering the question, are we alone out there? We are learning a lot about distant planets these days. According to Boulder astronomer Doug Duncan, he leads the Fisk Planetarium, joins us regularly to talk about space science. Welcome back, Doug. Hello, Ryan. So there are seven planets orbiting the relatively close star, TRAPPIST-1. Take us there. What would we see if we stood on the surface of one of these planets? Well, it would be absolutely wonderful. So all our listeners should crank up their imagination. First of all, imagine a salmon-colored star. Okay. Not yellow or white like the sun, but this star is smaller, it's cooler, it's kind of salmon orange color. And then you're on one of seven planets, and they're close together. Those planets are all closer to their star than Mercury is to the sun. So that means uh, look up in the sky and you see up to six other planets. And not just like Venus is in the evening sky right now above the Rocky Mountains, which is beautiful. Yeah. But they'd all be brighter than Venus. In fact, the brightest one could look bigger than the moon and be way brighter. So that's what would be in your sky dancing around. Six planets. It's better than science fiction because it's real. Because it's real. It's science nonfiction. When scientists say they discovered these planets, uh, they don't mean that they've seen them exactly. How do we know they're well, there? Well, they've kind of seen them. Yeah, okay? exactly. Some listeners may remember that back in 2012, Venus went in front of the sun. And it made a little black spot on the sun that day. And uh, if you were off at a great distance it would have caused the sun to look a little bit dimmer. And these planets make their star roughly 1% dimmer as they pass in front. Okay. And so if you are watching really carefully with a camera that can detect subtle changes in brightness, every time a planet passes in front of the star, there's a dip 
in the brightness, and we've seen dozens. What, what's been doing that detecting? What equipment do we have to see that? Well, it's very interesting because uh, the original detection, which was three planets before they figured out there were even more, huh. was done with a small telescope. By our standards, what's small? Well, it, there are people in Denver who are amateur astronomers. Uh, not too many, but a few. What they would call a big amateur telescope was the size used to find these planets. On the roof uh, at, up at CU Boulder, we have two teles- three telescopes, actually. They're open every Friday night for free, and they're the size that found these planets. Okay. The telescope's about two feet across, and that's it. So uh, they're calling these planets Earth-like because they're rocky as opposed to being gas giants. How do they know that? Well, when a planet passes in front of the sun, if it was the Earth, it's only one-tenth the size of Jupiter. So the amount of light that it blocks is relatively small. And from the percentage of the starlight that's blocked, we can calculate exactly the size of these planets. And all of them, all seven of of them, are between maybe 50% bigger than Earth and 50% smaller than Earth. So we say they're all Earth-sized. But that doesn't help us understand what they're made of, does it? That's right. And here's where it gets really intriguing. Imagine these seven planets going around. Okay. The ones closer to the star go faster. And so what that means is every once in a while a planet laps another planet, like you're driving on the inside, right, of the uh-huh. track, and you pass the, the car going by. When the planets do that and get especially close to each other, the gravity tugs between the planets and speeds them up or slows them down, and it changes the orbit. So let's say one planet is orbiting every six days. If it passes another planet, it might be six days and two minutes. And by how much it speeds up or slows down, you calculate the strength of gravity, and that tells you the mass. Uh So you know the mass, you know the size, you know the density, and the answer is rocky. Not big and puffy or something. Rocky. It's amazing what we can glean with just a little bit of information. And, And sensible information, yeah. So the next step, I suppose, is to look for, what, signs of water on these planets? Indeed, and, what the liv- yeah. livability, habitability is. And and that's kind of nice because the way we find what these planets are made of is from their spectrum. If you imagine one of these little black dots in front of their star, uh, when the planet's in front of the star, there's a little teeny ring all the way around the planet. That's the planet's atmosphere. So a little bit of starlight goes through the planet's atmosphere on its way to the Earth. And that imprints onto the light the pattern of spectrum that comes from the gases in Mm. the planet's atmosphere. So we can learn even more from a distance. Yeah, and it's very subtle because, remember, the planet is only a tiny fraction of the star. So you have to observe with great, great care— If we look at the spectrum of the sun or the Earth's atmosphere, we see dozens and dozens of gases. We're just hoping for the major constituents of the other planet's atmosphere. And that would tell us something about potential livability. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are having our regular conversation about space science with Doug Duncan of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. Just over 20 years ago, we didn't know of a single planet outside our solar system. Now we've spotted nearly 3,500. Earlier this month, a CU scientist was part of a team that confirmed water in the atmosphere of a distant gas planet called 51. 
51 Peg B. Peg B. That's probably my favorite extrasolar planet because I was over in Europe when the Swiss announced the first extrasolar planet like that. And the buzz went through every astronomer there. Oh, my God, have we really started to find them? Because for my whole life, people have wondered, is there something out there in the way of planets that mm. other life could live on? And and now we know about the planets, and now we got to go find a, out about the life, right? Right. And about the conditions present potentially for life. Well, and that's uh, that's what a smart detective would do. And this is why NASA calls this a major leap forward in that search, I guess. I think so, because we're finding more and more interesting planets. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's people out there that love Pluto <laughs> and people who love Jupiter and Saturn. But the really interesting planets are the ones that could be homes for life. The search for these exoplanets is getting a lot of attention, but there is a chance we still haven't found all the planets in our own solar system. Oh, there's more than a chance. I it's, can't believe this. It's, it's guaranteed. There's uh, something called Zooniverse and the, right. the search for Planet Nine. Yes. So the way that Pluto, whether you call it a planet or not, it's a fascinating world. The way Pluto was found back in the 1930s by a Kansas farm boy named Clyde Tombaugh, oh. was he worked at a telescope where they took many pictures, and he would compare this picture to the next one and this one to the next one. The stars wouldn't move, but a little dot, a really faint dot, would move slightly from picture to picture. And when he saw that, he knew it was close enough, much closer than the stars, it had to be a planet. So there's lots of Pluto's friends out there but the sky is big, and astronomers have tens of thousands of pictures now. And somebody needs to eyeball to look for the little moving dot, and that could be you. Okay, and this is through this Zooniverse program? Yes, yeah, Zooniverse is a generic name for citizen science. Yeah. There's now lots of projects where you can go up, sign on for free, and you can look for stuff that scientists need help finding. So if you found Planet Nine, would you get to name it? You would. Oh. Isn't that stunning? Absolutely. You would. The discoverer gets to name it. There are some rules, mind you, okay? I know you're thinking Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell it in your expression. And oh, Ryan is taken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, seriously, uh, that's true. The discoverer of planets gets to name them. But did that farm boy get to name Pluto? Yes. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. It turns out he was working for Percival Lowell, the Bostonian rich guy who funded him. And if you notice, Percival Lowell, P-L-U-T-O, he named it Pluto, and his benefactor loved him the rest of his life. I guess. Uh, turning away from the stars, let's look a minute at what's under our feet, because there are clues to the universe there as well. According to an article in the journal Nature last week, scientists have confirmed a critical theory of how the planets in our solar system behave in their orbits by studying rocks in Colorado. What did they find? Kind of crazy. Turns out that um, the pull of planets affects the seasons. Okay. Some people know, actually most people don't know, the reason we have seasons is not that we're closer or farther to the sun. It's that the Earth's axis does not stick up perpendicular to our orbit around the sun. It's tilted, it's tilted about right. 23 degrees. So when you tilt toward the sun, it's higher in the sky. That's summer. 
When you tilt away from the sun, it's lower in the sky. That's winter. Well, the 23 degrees actually changes a little bit over many thousands of years. The degree of the tilt. The degree of the tilt. Other planets affect the Earth. Not too much. Our moon tends to stabilize us. This sweeping back and forth away from 23 degrees affects Mars more than the Earth. But anyway, on the Earth, when we change a little bit, the seasons get stronger or weaker. That affects ice ages. So when you're up in snowmass and see all the buried snow mastodons, yeah. or when you're in Rocky Mountain Park and you see where the elks hang out, those are places where glaciers were, and the little changing of the Earth's tilt affects those. Well, millions of years ago, apparently it affected it enough that the the rainfall, the climate, the seasons, left their mark actually in the mud, which became rock. Geologically. So there's a geological evidence that this changing of the Earth's tilt has been going on for millions of years. One more thing to glean from Colorado's rocks. <laughs> That's right. I can't let you go without asking what you think about the plan by SpaceX to send two tourists, wealthy anonymous ones, on a trip around the moon next year, they say, 2018. I love the idea, Ryan. Um, Are you you one of the wealthy If I could afford a ticket uh, to space, I would put my money down. No question. Uh, As some listeners know, I already go into the Arctic and take people to see the Northern Lights. And there is just something, I think, in the human spirit of when you're in what is the unknown, what feels like the unknown. That's where you personally share with the great explorers. And I think a lot of people will be at home, and they'll still vicariously enjoy Mm. this exploration. I hope so. If it's streamed live, Well, I hope we we talk about it here. (laughs) Thank you so much, Doug. Yes. Astronomer Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Doug will speak at the Fisk March 16th and 18th about the full solar eclipse that'll sweep the nation this summer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More than 100 dams across the state failed to pass their most recent safety inspection. That's according to KDVR-TV. Their story came as a massive dam in Northern California was at risk of giving way because of heavy rains. Here in Colorado, the state's chief of dam safety says most dams are of little risk to the public, even if they're deteriorating. Earlier this year, CPR reported on the few proud Coloradans who live at or near dams and are a first line of defense. Here's that report from our environment reporter, Grace Hood. For Doug Billingsley, it begins with a snowmobile ride that feels like a bucking bronco. This is where it gets fun. Yep, that's the sound of us falling into a snowbank. But we recover and head off into 30-mile-per-hour winds. This is a typical day for Billingsley. By snowmobile, snowshoe, or foot, he looks after about a half-dozen northern Colorado reservoirs that feed Greeley's water supply. He's done the job for two decades. Today, he digs through snow at Barnes Meadow Reservoir to make sure water levels are holding steady. It's Hell Point, what we call Hell Point. Head gone up or down. And that's a good thing. Greeley doesn't want to release water from this reservoir right now. Next, it's time to take a look at the nearby dam. Do I see any bulges? Do I see any rises? Do I see any dips? Anything out of the ordinary, because I know what the dam's supposed to look like. Summer and winter. 
When it comes to dam safety, human eyes are still one of the best tools to recognize problems. That's according to Bill McCormick, dam safety chief for Colorado. Take, for example, earthen dams. Automated tools monitor water seepage. Small amounts are common. But if new seepage starts in another location, tools can't catch that problem. The caretaker can help see those things, they can determine the appropriate action, and they can prevent a small situation like that from ever becoming an emergency. Colorado has come a long way since its worst failure in 1933. That's when Castlewood Canyon Dam burst, spilling water into Cherry Creek and parts of Denver. Today, automated sensors help water managers detect problems remotely. High-hazard dams like Barker Reservoir in Nederland are inspected every year. But the need for a physical presence at reservoirs remains. McCormick estimates that about 75 people work as caretakers statewide. About one-third of them are employed by Denver Water. The best part about it is that you never do the same thing twice unless it's shoveling snow. Ryan Rayfield is head caretaker for Denver Water at Williams Fork Reservoir. He says his workers have to be a jack-of-all-trades. There's painting, carpentry, fixing lawnmowers. Rayfield even repairs and operates the hydroelectric plant. He says spring, summer, and fall make you fall in love with the work. It's not until winter that you learn what you're made of. My first winter there was the biggest. That was 2013. We chipped ice and shoveled snow for about five weeks straight. That's all we did. Denver Water employs as many as three caretakers to live at some of its remote reservoirs. In California, for example, at the Hetch Hetchy Regional Water System, which serves the San Francisco Bay Area, there's typically just one caretaker stationed in remote areas. For Greeley Water's Doug Billingsley, most days are good days. Over his two decades of work, the job has become a calling. He didn't evacuate during a significant 2012 wildfire to watch the Milton Seaman Reservoir. He stayed put during the 2013 floods to make sure the dams held, which they did. They're trusting me to take care of the city's assets, and I'm up here enjoying life. I'm by myself 90% of the time. I'm out here in nature. I talk to myself. Nobody judges me. It's great. Billingsley's job may shift in the coming decades with technological advances, but many water managers believe the caretaker's role won't disappear completely. That's because some reservoirs are too remote and the demand for water too high for there not to be eyes on the ground to make sure water gets to those who need it. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And Grace's story first aired in December of 2015. Finally today, big news from the Tiny Desk. NPR Music has chosen the winner of its Tiny Desk contest. This band will get a lot of attention and the chance to tape a performance at NPR headquarters. And the winner is Tank and the Bangas, a group from New Orleans. So no dice for the Colorado entries. But Coloradans are no stranger to the Tiny Desk, like Esme Patterson. Here's a little something from her recent stripped-down set, a song called Yours and Mine.
That's Esme Patterson. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.